back from India about a week ago. For those of you who are guests, I was there for three weeks visiting about six North Wake families that are there and had a great trip. While I was gone, the rest of you, you did the study, serve, sign up, switch thing, and I was informed that you did it far better while I was away than you do it when I'm here. So that without any public flogging, there are almost no... Uh, gaps left, just these few, um, and, and since you are the 9 a.m. folks, those 10.45 gaps, if, if you've not had a chance to sign up to serve yet, especially the young twos are completely without a team. So if there's somebody you'd like to teach with, you think it'd be fun, and you'd like to love on some two-year-olds in the name of Jesus, uh, you get an extra star in your crown for that in glory, and you can sign up, see Stephanie Jackson, um, if you can help with any of those needs, and I would like to pray about that and pray for our time together in the Word this morning, so if you'll, if you'll bow with me, let's, let's pray. Father, we love our kids, and we want to we disciple them in the faith. I know for me that, that this church has mentored and discipled and loved my, my kids. I think that's made all the difference in the world to them, and I am deeply thankful for that. We would not begrudge any of our children that privilege. And so I pray that you might uh, touch hearts and free schedules up and give people faith and courage uh, even to step in with those two-year-olds and love them well in Jesus' name. And now, Lord, as your people, we sit. Um, we're trying to calm down busy minds, trying to press out uh, busy thoughts and needful things so that we can hear from you. So I pray you would help us with that by your spirit. Now, press the word deep into our lives so that we might follow Jesus better because of this time. Have mercy on us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we find ourselves studying the book of Acts this morning in Acts chapter 12, if you would like to turn there. And it's a time in the, in the life of the young church in Acts that the gospel is, the, the circle of the gospel is spreading outward from Jerusalem in ever larger circles. As, as Jesus predicted and commanded, it is spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth, as we'll, we'll see in time. But that's not the only thing that's happening in the book of Acts. <clears throat> persecution and opposition to that gospel is also happening. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 4, there were threats made against the church. In Acts chapter 5, there were beatings. In Acts chapter 7, there was the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, there was widespread persecution and arrest by a man named Saul. In chapter 9, Saul was marvelously rescued by Jesus, and then there was a plot immediately to kill him such that he had to be lowered. Remember, he was lowered through a basket in a wall to escape at night. Um, as the gospel spreads, there is great spiritual opposition to it unfolding in Acts, and uh, as part of that, there's great suffering by God's people. And one of the things that I was reminded of in, in India was that that continues to this day. And I, I touched on one short story last week. Let me tell you a couple others. I, I sat in Kolkata with uh, one of our folks from our church. We sent out there, Andy, 
and Andy is doing a beautiful job in this city, and we did a half-day training with a handful of his key national leaders, and uh, this room is, is full of people with amazing stories, only some of which I heard and could recount to you today. But this man right here, his name is Aziz. He's a, a Muslim background believer in Jesus who is now a pastor of a church of Muslim background believers. And uh, the, the custom of his people uh, was to wear a long beard and, a, and distinctive uh, Muslim garb, but um, they plastered all over the five major Muslim newspapers in Kolkata his name and picture and published him as one of the most wanted and encouraged people to persecute him and drive him out of their city. So now he can no longer dress like that. He has shaved his beard and, and, and disguised his appearance so that he can continue to pastor the, the people in that city lest he be beaten to death. Um, I mentioned to you last week, Sheila, uh, she became a follower of, of, of Jesus and um, her Hindu husband took all of her clothes and locked her out of their home. He hired friends of his to come with a gun one time and with acid another time to disfigure her face. Um, and because of that, she's had to flee with her two young children. This young lady, her name is Wahida. Wahida is a single mother who professed faith in Jesus and her Muslim husband took her five-year-old son and hid him from her. And she has not seen him now for, for a couple of years. Um, Sujit is a young man of about 20. He has professed faith in Jesus and is learning how to follow him, but he is fearful to follow him in baptism because he's afraid that his Hindu father will beat him and disown him. I'm not using that figuratively. That his own father would beat him because he had followed Christ in baptism. At this uh, same gathering, I sat in, the, in a back room afterwards with a remarkable man who's a leader of one of the regions over there, um, Guy speaks 17 languages, so he entered the smart category for me at that point in time, <laughs> and I figured out who was supposed to do the listening and who was supposed to do the talking at that point in time, and he was telling me one of the things he wanted, he oversees <coughs> work in Bangladesh and about seven states of India there, um, and he, he wanted me to tell you uh, he is greatly concerned uh, in India uh, about the political turn in recent uh, days, there is now a Hindu nationalist party that is in control or in power in India, and he um, is concerned. They have now, they have in some states, and they're proposing them on a wider basis, anti-conversion laws, where if you are from a Hindu background and you would like to convert to Christianity, as an example, you must go before a magistrate and prove that you are not coerced to become a follower of Jesus by any kind of monetary compensation or, or reward 
or anything like that, which, of course, identifies you as a convert and puts you at great risk uh, in some areas. Um, you know what? Conversion is not, or not conversion, but persecution is not just the New Testament uh, problem. It is a suffering that has followed the, the followers of Jesus all throughout history. It's happening today. Um, it wasn't just in this city, but in other cities I sat and heard the stories. It's different here. The, the pressure not to believe, not to follow is more subtle. But you know it's increasing. All, all you have to do is be an ESPN analyst who professes some kind of traditional Christian morality in view of marriage. And there are all kinds of pressures brought on you. Some of you experience them where you work. Some of them where you go to school. Some of you in your families. Um, today we are looking into a window of intense persecution of the church, of followers of Jesus, people, people like you and me in first century Jerusalem, and, and this is their story. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleaded the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, Peter that is, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now this Herod, Herod the king here, is Herod Agrippa I. He is the Roman ruler over the Jews in Judea where they lived and other surrounding areas. And for reasons that aren't given to us, he is bent on persecuting the followers of Jesus. Such that he takes James. James was one of the inner circle of the twelve. That inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, that James. He put him to death by the sword, which likely means he beheaded him. And now he saw that that pleased the Jews who were his uh, subjects in, in the region where he was Herod, where he was the king. He saw that it pleased them. And so he has Peter, the second one of the three, imprisoned with likely the same intent that Peter's imprisonment would end in death as well. Now, I don't know what provoked Herod to be so against the church. Maybe just their numbers were threatening. At this point, there were probably more than 10,000 believers in Jerusalem, just looking at the accounts that we have in the book of Acts of thousands of people coming to faith. Perhaps that was a threat. Perhaps the fact that you have now more than 10,000 people whose supreme allegiance is not Herod and is not Caesar, but is the one true God, maybe that was threatening. But whatever the reason, what we are, this window we're looking into is a sad and fearful day in Jerusalem 
in the life of people like you and me who have chosen to follow the way of Jesus. And so with the murder of James, the imprisonment of Peter, and his likely impending death, now that circle of three apostles that were preeminent amongst the twelve, they're now they're going to be down to one. Just John is left. And clearly this signaled reigniting a great persecution against all Christians. And that's what they're facing. And again, this is not... This is not a surprise. This is not even some kind of aberration. The teaching of the New Testament is clear about followers of Jesus that our expectation should be that if we follow Jesus, we will suffer somehow, some way. Peter, the same Peter, he would write in 1 Peter, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Um, the Apostle Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, it's, the, it's the expectation. Jesus said in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Um, part of following Jesus is a willingness to suffer for Jesus, to suffer in order to be faithful to our King, Jesus. To be maligned, to be rejected, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, even as we're seeing in this passage, even to die. The reality of it is, okay, hey, we're all going to die, okay? You're either going to die following Jesus or not. Let's go out following Jesus, okay? Let's just make that our, our commitment as God's people, that as He gives us faith and grace, we're going to follow to the end, okay? No matter what. No matter how hard the marriage, how demeaning the job, how, how difficult it is, how painful it is, we will follow. We will follow all the way. But you can imagine what this was like for the believers in Jerusalem. You can imagine what it's like for those believers in Calcutta, um, their pastor in hiding, death threats being made against him. Imagine uh, if... If Rob Craig were killed and Jeff Doyle was put in prison, I was traveling. <laughs> but seriously, how would that affect whether you were here or not? So all of a sudden, your faith is suddenly becoming very real, isn't it? It's becoming very costly. What would you do? Is fidelity to Jesus worth suffering for to you? Is it worth that? See, these first verses of chapter 12 are pretty dark and pretty foreboding. Then there's this real interesting little insertion that Luke does as he tells this story. In the very next verse, in verse 5, this is what he says. So Peter was kept in prison, but 
earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay. So that when faced with a terrifying threat against them and their leaders, the church in Jerusalem gathers together and devotes themselves to prayer for Peter. Devoted to prayer. The church devoted to prayer. Heard that before in Acts, right? Acts chapter 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Acts chapter 4. They lift their voices together in prayer. Acts chapter 6. The elders devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The early church was marked by their devotion to prayer so that and such that when when these kinds of life-threatening sufferings come to them, they have trained themselves to pray. It's what they do. When these kinds of life-threatening trials come, they pray. And it's a good thing for us just to self-reflect on for a moment. When trials come, what do we do? And Luke puts this little statement about their prayerfulness in here as as a bright and contrasting hope against the backdrop of persecution and suffering that he's just painted. And he's, he's also telling us It's readying us for what's about to happen, which one writer called the great escape. It's a beautiful story. Let me tell it to you. When Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, that is, on that very night, okay? So it's the night before Peter is to be tried and likely executed, that night. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, which is an amazing thing. The night before you're likely facing the sword, Peter's asleep. So that just speaks of faith to me. He's bound with, he's sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door guarding the prison. So Peter is in maxim, a maximum security prison. He is sleeping between two soldiers, bound evidently to them by chains with sentries before the door guarding the prison. So this is a maximum security environment. You get the sense that Herod wants to make sure that Peter does not escape. And he has good reason to think that. Think back with me to Acts chapter 5. Remember this story? It says, The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and they reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and said, hey, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Herod's like, 
Ain't no way that's going to happen this time. Okay? Peter is chained to two guards. I've got other guys standing, extra guards, sentries at the door. Um, no way I'm losing this prize prisoner. So what Herod does is he makes escape humanly impossible. It is humanly impossible for Peter to escape, which is like an invitation for God to make his grand entrance. And he does that in this story um, by means of an angel at the last possible moment, which is often God's modus operandi, right? At the last possible moment, he comes. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. And this is funny. Peter, there's all kinds of subtle humor. Peter is sleeping so soundly that the angel, he comes in and does his little, ta-da! It doesn't even wake him up. Okay? So he pokes Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter, Peter really has little or nothing to do with this escape, right? He, he's asleep, he's sound asleep, and when he wakes, um, he thinks it's a dream. And the angel's in command, right? He is telling Peter, get dressed, go here, do this, and then the chains miraculously break free. The gates miraculously open themselves, and the guards evidently miraculously sleep through it all. Okay, This is God's work. This is not Peter's work. This is God's work. It is God's answer to the church's prayers. Okay. This is what we just read. God's answer to the church's prayers prayers. Now, when Peter realized this, realized that it wasn't a dream, finds himself actually standing outside the gates in the city, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So this story of this amazing, great escape by Peter, it's bracketed by two things. Did you notice it? Verse 5, the church was praying. He gets out. Verse 12, the church was praying. And what happens in between is God's answer to the church's prayer. Prayer is integral to the work that God is doing here. Verse 5, they are praying earnestly. And verse 12, we find them praying, I think, all night. Peter gets out when? In the night. This is an all-night, at least through the night, kind of, of prayer gathering, prayer meeting that's going on here. It is the 
expression of their earnestness. Now, providentially, in two weeks at intermissions, we have an all-night prayer vigil that you can sign up to be part of. Okay? I hope you will. It's not, that, it's not the hour that matters, but it's the willingness to pray, the desperation to pray at any hour that matters here. So we will. We'll be having an all-night prayer vigil where we'll be praying for the, the works of Northwake that God has given to us to do all around the world. We'll be praying for those things all night. We'll have requests from all around the world, and we'll be nonstop for, for at least 24, maybe even longer, I'm not sure, hours. Um, and you'll have a sign-up for that coming soon. Praying earnestly. Tonight at 6 o'clock in this room, we have our corporate, monthly corporate prayer gathering. Um, tonight is a members-only prayer gathering following up on a church discipline matter that we prayed about in November. Um, this is a time when the church needs to gather for earnest prayer for a brother who has denied his faith. Again, this is just for members, for the protection of the reputation of our brother that we are praying for. So if you are not a member of Northwake, then if you would just remain at home and pray for us during this critical hour, we would ask that of you. But the church, the church here is called to pray earnestly, fervently. And what's interesting, though, as the story unfolds, they are praying all night for Peter. But when but this miraculous rescue takes them totally by surprise. They had no idea it was going to happen. It was totally unbelievable to them. Watch what happens when he gets to Mary's house. Peter knocked at the door of the gateway. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, this is more of that subtle humor through here, in her joy she did not open the gate but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So Peter is left in the street right? Knocking on the door. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, uh, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James, a different James, obviously, this is James, the brother of Jesus, and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. And this story is full of <coughs> all kinds of really amazing things. But you got to love, who's the first person who gets to learn about the miracle? A servant girl named Rhoda, right? This is, this is, this is the love and mercy of God. This is why, why most of us, have got, we got to hear the gospel the good news, it comes to the lowly us, to those who acknowledge their great need. And so this little servant girl, she hears it, and she's so excited, they're praying. She runs back to tell the others and forgets to let Peter in. They're praying earnestly all night, but they're totally not expecting this. There's a cartoon that I found that I love. This is Peter behind bars. And then he says, it was easier getting out of prison than into Mary's house. He's standing out, actually standing outside the gate at Mary's house. Um, so 
So Rhoda, in her excitement, she runs back. She leaves Peter in the street, and nobody will believe her. They tell her, you're crazy, okay? You're crazy, Rhoda. And it, so you, you get the feeling, if this isn't what they were praying for, um, for an angel to come and rescue Peter from prison, what were they praying for? Were they praying for an acquittal at the trial? That he would be set free through the legal process? Were they praying that he would suffer well for the name's sake? You know, it's interesting. The thing that's emphasized about the prayer of the church is their earnestness. Not that they knew exactly how they were supposed to pray, but they were praying. They were praying. Um, And this is, if there's one thing you walk away from this story today with, uh, walk away with this little, this one little thing. Um, God grants them more. Okay? God grants them more than they were asking. It's why they were so surprised. I don't even know that they had the faith to pray for an angelic rescue. God grants them more. He grants them more than they dared to ask, more than they dreamed about, more than they could imagine. Um, If you could advance that slide for me, please. There we go. Now to him who is able, Paul put it this way, he said, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, God grants them more than they were asking. What an incentive to pray. This is the God we pray to, the God we draw near to when our suffering or the suffering of those that we love is terrifying to us. We are drawing near to the God who grants more, abundantly, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. This story, it does not rebuke them for their unbelief, that they didn't expect this, okay? But it holds them up as exemplary in their fervent prayer. And it seems that the whole church was probably praying. Again, there's 10,000 people in the city. Likely they were all playing, praying. We, we get a sense that they were all praying for Peter. The word spread. And so, but Peter goes to a little place. It's a house church at one lady's house, Mary's house. And it's probably what we would call a, a small group. Okay? And that small group is spending the night in prayer for their pastor. A practice I really recommend, okay? I'm a fan of this. If you have no other application out of this passage, there you go, okay? So this this is a small group, and they hear about a need, and they desperately go to God in prayer. If you're a small group leader at Northwake, when suffering and hardship comes to those in your, in your group, okay? here's, here's the plan. Okay? Stop, drop, and pray. Okay? That's what I want you to teach your group. When hardship comes, this is the first 
thing we do. It's the most important thing we do. We stop, we drop to our knees, and we pray. It doesn't have to be all night, but it could be. But it must be how we respond to hardship and suffering. The first thing we do is cry out to our Father. We must remind one another that when we do this, we're praying to the Father, our Father, who grants more, far abundantly more than all we could ask or even imagine. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7 when he encouraged us. He said, ask, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Ask, ask, ask your Father who grants more, far abundantly more. So, okay, I went on this India trip, okay, I was gone for about three weeks, and uh, absolutely amazing, uh, amazing trip. We started up here in Delhi, and we went over to a city here called Kanpur, and then over to Calcutta, over here on the coast, and then down to Vishakhapatnam, which took me about the entire time I was there to learn how to say it, then went to Hyderabad. Went down to Bangalore and ended up way down here in Kochi. Okay. So I was all over, all over India and saw significant answers to prayer all along the way. Uh, before I left, about coincidentally, about a week before I left, maybe 10 days before I left, my back began to act up in a way that it had not in years. Okay coincidentally, before I'm supposed to get on a plane to go visit six of our families, I'll be on the plane and in various airports for 24 hours on the way there, straight. And then I, ca I counted at one time, in 18 days, if you count time on the tarmac, I was in 17 airports, okay? So it was one of those trips where you don't want your back to be acting up. And sure enough, right before, I have a back. So I had people pray, and I got on the first flight. My back was better, but still bothering me by the time I got off. My first flight, I had, no more, I had no more back pain the entire trip, okay? None. Um, I went, I told you last week, I went nearly three weeks with no sickness in, uh, in India, which is amazing. Um, if you've ever traveled to, to Asia, there are lots of things in the water and the food that we're not accustomed to, and they often affect us. Um, we'll have, uh, I want to tell you guys, we'll, we'll, just a little aside, we're going to have a chai party in the next week or two leading up to intermissions where we'll show lots of pictures, tell lots of stories. The Huntleys, Megan Fraser, Jay Burke will all be there telling lots of stories. It'll be in the lobby, probably likely one of the next two Sundays, so just keep your eyes out for that. We'd love for you to come and pray for these wonderful families who are there and learn more about what God's doing there. Um, but while we're traveling this thing, one of the things um, that happened that it uh, was really extraordinary. I had all kinds of conversations with all kinds of people about Christ. Um, 
The darkest place I went on my trip was a Hindu temple in Calcutta to the Hindu god Kali. And it was spiritually uh, you, palpably dark. You could feel it. And uh, had a marvelous opportunity to share Christ with a Brahmin priest in that temple. Uh, had a chance on a couple of occasions to share with uh, uh, leaders and workers in mosques that we visited about about Isa, about Jesus, and have conversation with them about that. I had a chance to talk with a Sikh uh, on a plane flight, uh, which is an offshoot of a real interesting sort from Hinduism. Um, they're the guys who always wear the turbans. Those are, those are Sikhs when you see those most of the time. Um, talked to a Hindu businessman on the plane to Mumbai. I talked to, um, okay, when I was way down here, I met two Norwegian girls in a cafe outside of a synagogue in a Muslim neighborhood in India, okay? <laughs> it's as crazy as it sounds, but we had this marvelous conversation about Christ with them. Jeff and Brigitte were with me, and they shared their testimonies. We got to speak of them, and then we found out they're going to Thailand, where we have another North Wake family in, in a city called Chiang Mai, a small city in Thailand. They were going to that city, so we hooked them up with Aaron and Laurel from North Wake there to continue the conversation and to share hospitality and prayer in the name of Jesus with these ladies. So all these crazy, uh, they're as crazy as they sound, opportunities. Um, now, if you know me and you know my spiritual gift mix, I'm not an evangelist, okay? That's not my, that's not my gifting. It's not what God has primarily gifted me to do. So why all these crazy, every time I turned around, I had unexpected opportunities to share Christ. Why? said, so, well, uh, there, there are a couple of reasons, but one of them that I think is most significant to me is that I happen to have several hundred people praying for me to have conversational opportunities on my trip. I'm not the most perceptive guy spiritually, but I'm picking up a correspondence between the fact that several hundred people are praying for me to have opportunities, and I'm having opportunities out the wazoo that I never would have expected. Um, your small groups, you just started this little, simple little guide called pep talk, right? It's real simple. For some of you, it's too simple. There's no Greek or Hebrew, and so you've got your red pen out, and you're critiquing this thing, and you're marking it up, and you're thinking, I could have done, if they'd asked me, I could have done better. I'm marking it, you're marking it. Look, don't critique pep talk, okay? Do it, okay? It teaches you to pray to love and to speak of Christ to those around you. Okay? It's biblical. Trust me. It's biblical. Don't critique it. Just do it. Okay? Pray. You're going to learn how to pray like Paul in that little exercise where, where he says in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So pray like Paul. Pray for God to open a door for the word. Just like you prayed for me in India. If we pray that for one another here, if we'll pray like Paul here, what kind of crazy opportunities will we see here to share the love of Jesus Pray. Pray for open doors. 
and let's see what doors God opens. Okay? And yet in spite of all this encouraging talk about prayer, let's be honest, James still died by the sword. Okay? He did. What is that about? Did the church not pray for James like they pray for Peter? Did James have some kind of dark, unconfessed sin in his life? Why was Peter miraculously released? Why was James beheaded? And uh, the reality it is, we pray and we submit to the one who is the sovereign Lord of life and death who loves us. We pray and we submit to his will. 1 Samuel in the Old Testament says that it's the Lord who brings death or, or even kills and brings to life. The Lord brings death, and the Lord brings life. He is a sovereign king over all. He numbers our days and determines how long our life is to be and what our purpose is. That's why we serve him, because he's the Lord of all. Now, in James' particular case, it's interesting Jesus had spoken with James and his brother John, part of that inner circle of three, um, Peter, James, and John, back in Mark chapter 10, where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And he's speaking here of his suffering and even his death. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And so Jesus tells these brothers in kind of veiled language that they will follow him in suffering and even death, that cup of suffering that he drank of at the cross. And so his plan for these servants is that by their death, Christ's work would be forwarded. There's a, an ancient church leader, his name is Tertullian, and he's often quoted when he wrote, and he said he was writing to one of the persecutors of the Christian faith, and he said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. Therefore, God allows that we thus suffer. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Clearly, this doesn't mean, and Tertullian, I'm sure, did not mean that we should seek persecution, or that persecution is somehow good. You notice, even in verse 17, Peter does not stay at the house where the church was gathered. He went to another place. And I believe, as we're going to see, he's hiding from Herod's search. He's not seeking persecution. He's fleeing it. But he recognizes, as we must, that we serve a God who is committed to redeeming evil for good in the lives of his people, even our suffering, even unto death. Verse 18, when, when day came, 
There was no little disturbance, another great understatement in the Scriptures. There's no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become to Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Evidently, there was a a fabulous palace in Caesarea and he needed a break. But Herod searches everywhere for Peter. He cannot find him. So he assumes that it must have been an inside job or at least some kind of incompetence on the part of the guards or maybe this is just the angry rage of a wicked despot and he who has been bested by an opponent and Herod now puts the guards to death so that in one of God's great reversals that are in this story, those who would have led Peter captive to be put to death are now put to death, those captors themselves. The captors are now executed and the captive is set free. God is at work. Even in the suffering, God is at work. And so we have this closing story on the life of Herod and his opposition to God in verse 20. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two uh, coastal cities. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. So the people from these cities have done something to provoke Herod's wrath such that he blocked their food shipments. One writer put it this way. They said that Herod held sway over their food supply more like a god than a farmer. And so they come and they ask for peace with the help of one of the king's inner circle named Blastus. And Herod puts on his royal robes. And there's a historian who describes this. His name is Josephus. And he describes the scene this way. He says that when Agrippa appeared in the theater, the silver illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun was wondrously radiant. And by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. And then in verse 22, the people began to shout as he's wearing these royal robes, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. See, Herod here violated personally the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me, the, the, the foundational commandment. He's put himself forward and accepted the praise as a god. He's provoked God's judgment of, as a result. See, God will not share his glory as God with anyone else. Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so God completes the humbling of Herod here. First, he humbles him by taking his prized prisoner, and Herod refuses to respond. He refuses to submit. He refuses to believe. And so now, God takes not just his prisoner, God takes his life. And in vivid contrast, our passage ends this way. But the word of the Lord, the word of God, increased and multiplied. Herod died 
But the word of God increased and multiplied. Martyrdom cannot stop it. Imprisonment cannot stop it. The opposition of the people cannot stop it. The best or the worst efforts of a king could not stop it. Prison gates and guards changed could not stop it. The good news about Jesus, about God's love for all peoples, is unstoppable. It is going to go to the ends of the earth so that all people will hear. And one day, we're told, we're promised, in Revelation 7, we're promised that there will be some around that throne from every tribe, tongue, and language. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And because of that promise, because of what we see demonstrated in Acts 12, this is why Northwake has six families in India and another handful in China and one in Papua New Guinea and another in Romania and another in the DR, one in Mexico, a couple of families in the Czech Republic, one in Bosnia, three or four in Turkey, another one in Ethiopia, one in Egypt, a couple in Thailand, one in Puerto Rico, yes, even Tampa and D.C., North Raleigh and Rollsville. Because we believe that we bear the unstoppable message of the love of God in Christ for everyone, to all peoples, so that one day around that throne, every tribe, tongue, and language will be heard worshiping around his throne. And there is no suffering, there is no evil, there is no opposition that can stop it. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?